And if you would, please uh, pray with me while you find your seats. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you, uh, you are not a silent shepherd. But God, you speak to us. The Word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit. And we ask, God, that your Word would have its effect on us this morning. And we need your Spirit to do it. So we ask in Jesus' name, God, that you would speak to us and you would mold and shape our hearts to know you and be more like you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Jesus' life is object, lesson, and proof that God is love. His life gushed with love in all that he did and in all that he said. In love, he humbled himself in lowly estate. In love, he healed the sick. In love, he drove out demons. In love, he laid down his life for the ransom of many. In love, he sat with tax collectors and sinners at their tables. And sometimes, in love, he overturned tables. Jesus epitomized gentleness and meekness and patience, but sometimes motivated by love, Jesus publicly and aggressively rebuked certain Pharisees. You brood of vipers. You blind guides. Why is it that we see this confrontational aspect of Jesus come out with people like the Pharisees? Well, he does it because he loves his sheep. Claiming to be teachers of God and his salvation, some were misleading his sheep down a deadly path through false teaching. Jesus is the good shepherd, and sometimes in love, a good shepherd needs to fight off wolves. True love makes you protective of the ones in your care. Jesus' love for the vulnerable, impressionable sheep that we all are makes him confrontational to the wolves and false shepherds that would mislead us. And not just them, but at times Jesus also spoke sternly to his sheep directly with clear admonition, didn't he? Like a shepherd sternly beckoning a lamb away from a dangerous cliff edge. And just as we see it in the chief shepherd, so now we see it in the little shepherds that God puts over his churches. Because the churches in Crete have been without structure, many false teachers have arisen and have been leading people astray because of it. They've been muddying the gospel. And in doing so, they are, in verse 11, upsetting whole families. Paul prescribes a bold response here, doesn't he? But he does so, like Jesus, out of love for the sheep. What Jesus and Paul understood, and what we need to understand this morning, is that, one, our doctrine, what we are believing about God and his salvation, really matters. Jesus and Paul are not cavalier with false teaching. It has the power to ruin families and churches 
and souls. And number two, we are impressionable creatures. I don't think we like to think of ourselves this way. It's humbling, but it's the truth. There's a reason Jesus refers to us as sheep and children. We're easily influenced by the voices around us and the voices within us. We're quickly led astray. In our day and age, it is not a matter of if you are hearing false teaching or not. You're hearing it. Your kids are hearing it. The question is, can you discern it when you hear it? And if you're solely trusting in your own ability to sift that out, I would gently warn you, the Bible says our hearts are deceitful above all things. God's design isn't for us to do this on our own. In order to keep with God's truth, we need one another. We need the structure of his church. And as a part of that structure, Paul sends Titus to set up the right kind of elders in Crete. Namely, elders whose character inside matches their preaching outside. And ones that are, verse 9, able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Which leads us right into our text today. Why is Paul urgent to set up these kinds of elders in Crete? Verse 10, for there are many who are insubordinate. Empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. So let's start by looking at who these people were and what made their teaching so dangerous. Now let me just say, I'm I'm calling these people that have risen up in the church uh, false teachers, and it would be good to clarify the difference between uh, false teachers and just uh, bad preaching or bad teaching. There's a difference, a difference between heresy and error. False teachers teach heresy, and heresy contradicts Jesus and strikes at the core elements of the gospel, such as denying salvation by grace through faith. You don't get to label someone a false teacher if they preach a bad sermon that you don't like. Someone can misunderstand something as well, like baptism. Those we call errors, not heresy, not false teaching. The first danger we should notice from these false teachers is they were coming from within the church. They didn't hold official positions because there weren't official positions in this church yet. Although they thought themselves true believers capable of teaching, Paul says in verse 16 that they didn't actually know Jesus. This threat to God's church wasn't coming from the outside. It came from Jesus' proclaimers within the church. Second, Paul says that there are many of them. You know, one of the dangers of false teaching is that we are a people easily swayed by the changing popular opinion. The more people there are who agree to some changing doctrine and churches and whole denominations that cave in to a particular false teaching, the more it makes you think, huh, maybe there's something to this. But the popular opinion of the day is never our gauge for truth. 
We are a people of the book. Be weary of whenever there's a wave of people interpreting God's word a new way. It should be a red flag for us from the start. Now, Paul goes on describing some of these many false teachers in Crete as insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers. It's possible that he's using all of these words to describe the same group, but as he lists those, I think we can see different categories of false teachers that are still applicable for us today. There were some that were misleading the Cretan Christians from a spirit of insubordination or rebelliousness. This wasn't just rebelling against church rule because, again, there wasn't church structure yet in Crete. They were rebelling against the gospel. These were people that were actively rebelling against the teaching of Jesus. They weren't just misled themselves and ignorantly teaching poorly. It suggests that they knew what Jesus said. They just didn't like it. So they were willfully teaching against the authority of Jesus. But to be a disciple of Jesus means that we've submitted to the lordship of Jesus, doesn't it? And if we have submitted to him as king, that includes submitting to all that he's decreed as king. Listen, there's going to be some things in God's word that you don't understand fully. There might even be some things that you don't initially like. But a follower of King Jesus submits to his word instead of making the word submit to them. We humbly ask our infinite, all-knowing God to transform our finite and faulty hearts. One of the first things you'll notice with rebellious false teachers is that in order to validate their teaching, they will diminish the word of God or reshape it to fit their agenda. You know, some of these things Paul says, I don't really care for, But look at we can just ignore those. Not all the Bible is inspired by God anyway, you know. Those words don't have authority over us. You will know these kinds of false teachers by their rebellious spirit and their disregard for God's word and the gospel. But some false teachers don't mislead by rebellion against the gospel. They mislead by not making it about the gospel at all. Paul calls them empty talkers. They're windbags. Empty talkers love to passionately get on soapboxes that have nothing to do with what should really matter for a disciple. That may sound less threatening, but I assure you it is not. Paul was equally as concerned about this in the church of Ephesus In 1 Timothy, Paul's first instruction for Timothy is to charge certain persons in Ephesus not to devote themselves to meaningless things like myths and endless genealogies. He says, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion. 
Perhaps you've seen this kind of false teaching affect your Christian friends or family. I know that I have. There's some topic or some political alignment or some argument that they get fixated on, and it just has nothing to do with the gospel. See, too many Christians get trapped in utterly meaningless rubbish like conspiracy theories. They spend more time reading from wacky news sites or their preferred Instagrammers than they do God's Word. The hill they die on isn't the gospel, but some frivolous thing like the only right Bible translation. And over time, the true passion of their heart just isn't Jesus anymore. There's no gospel love for the lost. It's just vain arguments. Social media is, is filled with rants and vain discussions from Christians that are just, they're way off center. Like, what are you making such a big deal out of that for? It has nothing to do with God's heart and what he cares about. It's not producing love issuing from a sincere faith. And it's not only destructive to their own faith, but it lures others with them, and it's a terrible witness to the world. Well, that's what Christians are most passionate about? No thanks. Look, if Satan can't get you to deny the gospel of Jesus, he is just as happy if he can distract you from it completely. It has the same effect. You will know these false teachers when their passionate rants stir you away from the things that Jesus was passionate about. Still, some false teachers are plain deceivers. Formed from the mold of Satan, the chief of deceivers, they twist God's word to achieve their own selfish end. Satan doesn't deceive with straight denials of God. His heresy is of half-truths. Deceiving false teachers deal in imbalanced truth to suit their own gain. Paul says in verse 11 that they are teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. They're deceiving for money. One of the ways you see false teachers for what they are is by observing their lives and what they are really after. Jesus said in Matthew 7, Beware of false prophets. Who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves? You will recognize them by their fruits. Peter, in his second letter, spoke about these same kinds of false teachers, and he says something illuminating. There will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Sensuality, greed, exploitation. Sex, money, power. What false teachers throughout history have shared in common is the inevitability of compromise in one of these general areas. Their teaching is motivated by one of these three, and they will deceive in order to achieve it. Paul says in verse 15, To the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. Their works, their fruit, 
their real motivation prove that they don't really know God. Yeah, they know about God, but demons know about God. They don't really know him as one of their children. Their faith is a farce. It is because they're not truly believers that nothing is pure to them. They can't rightly teach the gospel. And that's why he says in verse 16, they're unfit for any good work. You will know these false teachers by their fruit. Insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers. And then Paul gives a special warning to Titus. There was a group of false teachers that Paul sees as especially concerning for the flock in Crete. He says, especially those of the circumcision party. And that's not referring to a bris celebration, right? Circumcision party was a false teaching in the New Testament world that Paul had to consistently speak against. It came from Jewish Christians that had accepted Jesus as the Messiah, but they were denying his way of salvation. They were teaching that, yes, you need to accept Jesus to be saved, but you also need to keep with these various laws in order to be saved. You need to be circumcised. You need to abstain from certain foods. This is a Jesus plus doctrine. Grace plus some works. But Paul says, if you do that, the gospel is made void for you. Even if you are trusting in 99% God's grace, just 1%, your good works. Now, I'm guessing most of us probably aren't in danger of accepting uh, circumcision as a way of salvation along with Jesus. But if we're honest, trusting in a grace plus work salvation is a temptation for all of our hearts to do. I grew up, like some of you, under false teaching that said, yes, to be saved, you must believe in Jesus, but you also need to be baptized and receive confirmation and uh, belong to this particular religious organization, and then you'll be in right standing with God. For some, the lie is trusting that it's Jesus plus your regular church attendance, or doing your good deed for the day. Yes, Jesus died for our sins, but we also need to do our bits too, right? Maybe you're waiting to accept Jesus because first you need to clean yourself up a bit. This was the same false teaching at work in the church in Galatia, and Paul treated it with the utmost seriousness. I'm going to read from Galatians 5, and for the sake of helping you see the applicableness of this, uh, wherever he says circumcision, I'll say grace plus works, because that's really what it is. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept grace plus works, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts grace plus works that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by grace plus works. You've fallen away from grace. Grace plus works severs you from Christ. 
The heresy on the other side of the coin, though, is grace minus works. The teaching that your love for Jesus or how you live your life doesn't matter at all. You prayed a prayer early in your faith, and now it just really doesn't matter if you pursue God or not. But James says faith without works is a dead faith. The imagery of a tree can be helpful here. And due to our giant windows, it's going to be tough to see. See, the root of our salvation is grace through faith. We are saved by Jesus through faith in him alone, completely apart from works, full stop. But if that faith is real, if the roots are alive, it should produce fruit. It should produce a changed life. Primarily a love for Jesus that causes you to want to follow him and obey him. The fruit, the works, can't save you. But they're evidence that your faith is alive. That Jesus has saved you by grace through faith alone. Our understanding of the gospel matters, church. This kind of false teaching couldn't be any more alarming for Paul because it alters the gospel. And if the gospel is changed, guys, the power of salvation is lost. It misleads people into thinking they're in right standing with God when in actuality they still stand as his enemy. It's because of the gravity of this And out of love for the believers in these churches that Paul tells Titus, these false teachers must be silenced. In Greek, they must be muzzled or gagged. It's not enough, Titus, to just focus on your good teaching and hope that the churches find truth. No, that's not what love looks like. You need to go confront these people and call them out in their false teaching. It's leading the sheep astray. He says in verse 13, therefore rebuke them sharply. I don't know about you guys, but I hate confrontation. Man, I will avoid it at all costs if I can. But there are times when love demands that we confront. To my shame, there are times when I let fear keep me silent when love should have led me to speak. In the garden, do you know who was right next to Eve when she was being tempted by the serpent? Adam. And God had commanded Adam to have dominion over the fish of the sea and over birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth, including serpents. As Eve was being lied to from the evil one, Adam should have rebuked him. He should have called out the lies for what they were, false teaching. Love should have compelled Adam to remind his wife of the truth. He's lying to you, Eve. This won't make you right in God's eyes. But he didn't. He remained silent as he just stood by her side, eventually taking the fruit himself, and death followed. But the second Adam, the better Adam, 
showed us a better way. Jesus didn't remain silent. Jesus knew there were times when love looked like sharp rebuke or stern warnings. Now, don't mishear me. I am not giving you permission to go rant on Facebook about all the false teaching you see. There is enough crusty, angry Christians devoid of love doing that already. No, Jesus taught with love, even in the rebuking. Paul says, therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. What's his hope? He wants them to repent and turn back to Jesus. He's not out to destroy them. He wants to do this in such a way that everyone in these churches are restored. But he's not wearing kid gloves when he does it. Paul's not afraid to call things out for what they are. And very wisely, in verse 12, he lets one of their own do it for them. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And you can just imagine that on the welcome billboard coming into Crete. Welcome to Crete, home of perpetual liars and evil beasts and lazy gluttons. See, Paul is, he's probably quoting a guy named um, Epimenides, but this was a common perception of Cretan culture. The ancient historian Polybius once wrote, it is almost impossible to find personal conduct more treacherous or public policy more unjust than in Crete. Cicero, a Roman scholar, wrote, moral principles are so divergent that the Cretans consider highway robbery honorable. Paul quotes this guy to say, look, everyone knows Crete is full of this kind of culture. Even one of their own says it. Don't be surprised then by the many teachers motivated by money, sex, and power willing to lie to get their way. We could do a similar thing with, say, the prosperity gospel. It's a false gospel that claims God wants you to be healthy and wealthy. All you need to do is claim it and give a little money to our ministry. And guess where this false teaching originated? The United States the place where greed runs rampant. Of course, the kind of false doctrine that would come out of a culture like that is one that excuses the wealth and greed of the teachers who proclaim it. See, to see the true nature of a false teaching, it helps to see the culture where it's birthed from. And so it is for Crete. But there's something else being said here that's worth meditating on. Paul quotes one of their own, uh, in part, I'm sure, because if he tried to say this on his own, he'd probably be accused of generalizing a whole people group or maybe even racism. It can be tricky to speak into a culture that you're not originally from. I know I feel this as an American blow-in. Look, I can mock America all day from the pulpit, and I might actually get an amen from a Baptist congregation. But if I try to speak into Irish culture as an American, it's often not met so welcomely. I'd sooner be accused of paddywhackery than keen insight into the culture. 
Paul quotes one of their own because we receive the hard truths from one of our own easier than we do an outsider. But think about what this is also saying. What's surprising here is that even one of their own sees their cultural flaws. See, we all have cultural blind spots. It's hard for us to see the errors of our own culture for what they are. We just become numb to it. It seems normal. And because of that, it's hard to see the false teachings in our cultures for what they are. Now, I may not be Irish, but I did grow up Catholic. And uh, for my own account, it was a religious culture that produced apathy. Just do your bit on Sunday morning. But there's no real need for a passion for Jesus or a growing relationship with God or a burden for the lost. And when you're in it, it's an apathy that just seems normal. And I know I'm only a three and a half year old Irishman, but apathy is the spiritual air we breathe here. It's just normal to be completely apathetic about Jesus. And it makes us susceptible to believe false teachings that feed into that. You don't need to grow in your relationship with Jesus. Just tick the box on Sunday mornings and you'll be grand. On top of our cultural blind spots, we also live in an incredibly unique time in history. In one sense, we are up against a very different challenge than in Crete. I imagine it took a lot of effort to be a false teacher in the first century. Like, you had to make handwritten copies of your teaching. You had to speak in public squares to get a following. Now, all you got to do is open a Twitter account. Listen, we are all teachers. We teach when we speak. And we are all being taught by the people around us. And the challenge today is that's coming from everywhere. You're being taught by the people you follow on social media. You're being taught by the videos you watch on TikTok and YouTube. And some of what you encounter online is from genuine false teachers. But most of these aren't false teachers themselves. But it's like breathing secondhand false teaching. Like secondhand smoke, we're we're breathing in the air of warped opinions of a broken world, and it's still damaging our lungs. Or if you think of it like food, you are what you eat, right? If you spend your day consuming the opinions of others on social media or your Netflix streaming, eventually your heart's just going to reflect that. A good doctor would tell you, in order to get healthy, you need to both eat less junk food as well as increase your healthy food. And I'll begin our application in the same vein. I just have two application points for us. Consume truth with your church and speak truth to your church. To protect yourself from false teaching, first, decrease your your junk doctrine and increase your healthy truth. You guys are going to know better than I do what voices you're listening to all day. 
consciously observe it this week. What teachings and opinions are you consuming? Whose voices are you listening to? Are they producing a love for Jesus that's rooted in the gospel? If not, cut back or consider cutting it out entirely. Limit your social media. Please do not get your theology from YouTube. TikTok pastors are not pastors. But you still got to eat. So consume truth, ideally with other Christians in this church. Christian, if you are not, you need to find a way to be in God's word. It's simple, but the best way to protect ourselves from false teaching is to be a part of a healthy Bible-preaching church and to be prayerfully saturated with the Bible every day. The more that we're saturated with God's story in the Bible, the easier it becomes to sniff out false doctrine. Like, it just doesn't smell right. You match it up with God's Word, and you're like, that's that's not line up with His story. If you're struggling with reading God's word, please don't be ashamed into silence. Let's talk to somebody about it. Come talk to us and let's find a way that we can help you engage with God's word. The 10 to 10 series going on right now is a great way to start meeting with God. And you are not meant to do this on your own. Fellowship with believers outside of Sunday morning. Especially lean on your elders if you have questions or are looking for resources. Second point, love speaks truth to this church. Now, this is especially given as a role for elders, but as we've been saying these past weeks, we all need shepherding care from one another. Sometimes love means we need to confront people speaking false truths. And love also means intentionally pulling each other back to truth. Like Adam in the garden, it isn't love to just sit back silently when you see a loved one caught up in a lie. Ask questions to figure out what's going on in their heart and speak the gospel into them. Like the second better Adam showed us. Don't worry about posting a Facebook status to the masses. Worry first about lovingly speaking the gospel into the people God has called you to in this church family. We are a people in need of constantly reminding each other of who we are because of the gospel. Finally, let me just encourage us in this. It's ultimately not us that keeps ourselves and this church tethered to the truth of the gospel. It is our chief shepherd. We need to understand ourselves as the sheep that we are. And so we dependently ask and look to Jesus to shepherd us down the right path. And oh, what a shepherd he is. He doesn't just point us in the right direction. No, this shepherd came down to show us the way. This shepherd lays down his life for us. This shepherd leaves the 99 for the one that goes astray. This shepherd walks with us in the valley of the shadow of death. 
He fills us with this spirit of truth. He doesn't remain silent, but he gives us his word. This shepherd keeps us if we but look to him in faith. Let's pray. Father God, your son uh, once prayed to his disciples that you wouldn't take us out of the world, but that you would keep us from the evil one. And I just pray that for Galway City Baptist Church. God, you've called us into this culture, into this world. We have the jobs and connections and the voices around us that we do. God, keep us where we are, but I pray, protect us and keep us in your truth. Keep us in the gospel. I pray for this church and we ask us that we would be a church that is always reforming back to your truth. God, align us with your word. I pray that you would help those among us that are struggling to to read from your word and I just ask for grace upon grace. God, fill them with your spirit. Open up this book to them. Give them Christian brothers and sisters that can humbly walk with them through it. Give them courage to try and to trust you. I pray for love for one another that looks like speaking to each other in love with the truth. Ultimately, we just ask, God, that you would do this among us. We pray it in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.